so let's see. Did um, yeah, we could talk about. Uh, let's see, what was it? Healthcare. Uh, what was the other thing I said? UBI and immigration. Immigration. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so uh, let me um, uh, touch base with what because I'm trying to remember your exact your position on uh, say universal health care specifically were you for universal health care or against it and by universal health care i mean i don't specifically mean medicare for all i'm including like you know the hybrid systems like france and germany have and all that right i so i would say that i would prefer a more free market system uh so like anything in the direction of like alleviating free market system and basically the way the idea is to increase access through different measures I'm, I'm more skeptical towards single payer for various, or like just any sort of universal healthcare program for various reasons, and we can kind of discuss some of them. Mm -hmm. So like that's kind of like the main gist of it. Okay, so so are you saying you agree, you uh, lean in the direction away from Germany slash France style yeah. hybrid, or oh, okay, okay, I got what you're saying. See, for me, the, I mean, the whole point of the universal system is that everybody is covered and so it takes into account that at some point in time everyone's going to get sick whether they want to think about that now or not mm -hmm. and so like uh i think it was i can't remember it was probably 10 years ago 12 years ago something like that rand rand paul was uh running for president and um <clears throat> actually it may have been longer ago than that i can't even remember right off the top of my head but uh, basically, he was being interviewed uh, by someone, and they're like, "But what? But what if someone gets sick and they didn't have insurance?" Um, and I can't remember exactly how the questions and stuff went down. Uh, I could probably find the video, but anyway, he's basically he, they were they backed him up into the corner until the point where he's like, "Well, guess they're gonna have to be left to die, basically." Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and. I and part of the issue with that, I think, is also just understanding the framework of healthcare that the U.S. works under right now, and it's that it's it's a necessity for one to have insurance. Yeah. Um, and and part of the reason why is because there's so many various costs that have been that that, that have risen over the past hundred years or so. Um, mm -hmm. And I think so. My my main issue isn't with like those like the like oh like we need to like so a lot of times like conservatives. Um, within within Congress, will try to advocate for more competition, right? Mm -hmm. Amongst insurance companies, oh, you should deregulate state lines so they compete mm -hmm. across, so you can have more insurance companies to drive down the cost. Actually, that goes far as uh, goes far enough because I think it, it's only like you're only hitting the 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 tip of the iceberg in a sense. Right. You're you're really trying to prune the leaves or the root problem in there. And I think part of the root problem is that there's there are various different regulations, but also just the way that the markets have structured themselves. That I think, um, and the markets structuring themselves mean that like there, it's been a reaction, right? Like when right. when government does one thing, the markets will adapt and react to that, right? Because the mar markets are very, very, very adaptive in that sense, uh, or maladaptive in one sense, right? That it will adapt for one area where it preserves a certain part of maybe, uh, maybe right, right. It'll react, but it'll react in a bad way at making it worse. Right, they'll they'll preserve them private markets or something like around those lines, and in, in in one sense, it makes the consumers worse off. So some of those things do happen, and so I think the focus for me, and I think what concerns me the most, is how do we cut that off, right? How do we lower the actual the real cost of healthcare instead of limiting 
or making it more affordable. So I think right. I think I'll say that my approach is a bit more different in that I think I want to actually reduce the real cost of healthcare, where a lot of the policies and candidates right now are trying to take care of the current problem. So like I so I, I think this is mainly a philosophical, but also b partly about um, economic policy that isn't really focused in the present in that one sense. Uh-huh. So that's and obviously like there's different like political feasibility questions with that, um, and like there. I do think though there are some things that can be done even now that can um, lower the cost of healthcare. So some very, very easy examples that I could think of is uh, making immigration a lot easier and, and changing, um, well, this, this isn't really necessarily easy, but changing some of the requirements for, how, uh, for, for immigration, especially high school immigration. One of the biggest issues with doctors, with just medical um, healthcare in general is that there's consistent shortage of doctors. Um, and that's not by accident. It's it's not because it's 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 not because oh the profession is just so prestigious and no one, no one goes in there. But is that there are real barriers that have been purposefully set up for various intentions, either for good intentions or for bad intentions, that have made it harder for people to qualify. Right, right. Work. I th- and this isn't my area of expertise, so you know, tell me if I'm wrong or not. But um, one of the things that I was listening to. Uh, on a podcast where they were mentioning that um, some of the regulations on procedures that, let's say, uh, uh, the difference between like a doctor or a RN or all these other people, uh, that some procedures that could be done well by someone like an RN or, you know, uh, uh, what's, you know, an assistant of some sort, uh, they only let doctors uh, do those procedures. Mm -hmm. And that inflates the costs because obviously doctors are going to cost more than those people. Not just that too. There's all sorts of different things that nurses can't do that have to be reserved to doctors, such as prescribing certain medication. And and it's true that nurses receive a lesser education. But if you actually look and you talk to doctors and you go to hospitals to see how it works, nurses are incredibly important. Like um, there's you know that, and there's there's consistent stories of of nurses, including, you know, one of my old mentors who berated doctors for making mistakes, for, for not for not doing a procedure well, for not administering a drug properly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of tacit knowledge in how to actually apply certain things that nurses do know. And there are certain procedures that maybe even nurses have been so experienced in this field of working so much in a system that they could actually do it themselves. That could actually mm-hmm. just the cost straight up with that. But there are legal barriers with that that make it harder for those things. Right. I think part of the reason, part of the issue here is also that. So before, a, just to double check, so we both agree that they should do a little bit, a little bit of deregulation in that area, not necessarily yeah. eliminate, eliminate, uh, not necessarily eliminating the like regulation, but easing it at, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and part of that also is that when you when you raise the barrier of entry. Um, less people are going to get in, and it creates a chokehold of supply. And this is exactly what's happened with, with the medical profession. And I mean, like this, it's not just that this has been happening for the past 20, 30, 40 years. This has been going on since the 1700s when some of the earliest physicians at that time had started to call for a more, a, a more stringent academic um, or more stringent um, control on how doctors are educated. And it was for good reasons. Like, I'm not saying that it's wrong. And it's that you want to have higher quality healthcare providers because you're playing with people's lives, right? Right, exactly. Which is my, uh, sorry if I I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just gonna say, you should 
make make the requirements sufficiently uh, you know stringent in order to keep people safe, but not so stringent to where you're just going overboard. Like uh, uh, an analogy might be like the airline uh, industry, as far as like the the freakouts from terrorism. Like most of the uh, stuff that you have to go through in order to get into the airport and get onto the airline is, isn't actually making anyone safer. All it's doing is uh, driving up costs and making people have to wait longer and stuff like that. And so there's obviously a diminishing line, uh, diminishing point of return. And like with, you know, safety on airlines, it seems like that's, uh, we've gone well past that as far as healthcare goes too. Yeah. You know, and, and, and those were for good intentions, but I think the steps that were taken, which was essentially licensing and further steps of licensing, really, I, I, I don't know if that was the right step of direction. And I'm, and I'm still even now right. skeptical about that for various reasons uh, for medical licenses. as It's basically like currency, right? It's almost like um, being in New York and you have those golden taxi medallions because those don't get made anymore. But when you have that, you're allowed to be a legal taxi. Anything else that doesn't have that, that's a black market right there. Right, so there's right. all these various issues that come about with that. And it really, really hits that spike. It's, it really starts It really starts to climax and escalate around the 1900s when medical care becomes more professionalized due to various scientific advances that, 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 that have been made. Right. Um, and obviously, I think, I think with certain, um, certain free marketers, they would point to World War II as being one of the first catalysts of essentially artificially inflating uh, healthcare costs for various reasons. Um, and one of the things that started happening was essentially employer provided insurance with that. And there are, all, there are a, whole, a whole host of issues that came with that, along with, at that time, the formation of uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield um, that, that, that came about, through, and they were essentially contracting almost um, pseudo monopolies in the health market. And all those things essentially helped raise the cost. And then came Medicare, Medicaid, and it's not to say that none of these policies are evil, awful, awful, but it's just that there are, there are trade-offs that were made, and I think the electorate, or at least the government, deemed those trade-offs to be worth it uh, in the short run, and it seems to be the case that they certainly were. Um, but in the long run, I, I think that's I, I think there have been a lot of problems that have slowly started to catch up with us on that. That I, I do think there are there there should be some necessary steps to be taken for that. I think also that. You know, when we talk about implementing healthcare like the NHS from Britain or France's healthcare or Germany's healthcare or Sweden's healthcare, um, and it's like not even like talking about the question of feasibility, right? We're talking about the question of how would it work in America? I think, I think for me, um, especially coming from an Asian background, uh, there is a particular culture in America that is very, very different from European culture, right? And that permeates in lifestyle. Right, and I think part of that too is that um, it's not just an issue of health, but also like healthcare, but also public health in general. Right, the foods that we consume, the things that are made in that, that are put in, the high amounts of sugar, the high amounts of carbohydrates, and a toleration of the Amer American public for wanting to have these types of high sugary content products do lead to further health problems that can compound upon themselves and create a lot of different costs. Right. And so if one is to implement any sort of universal health care, and I think from my understanding, I think, I think Britain's health care system will be a bit more problematic. I think Germany's health care system will probably, will probably be the best copy and paste model if you're going to try to actually put it into the framework of America. That'll probably be the best one. Germany Power seems to be doing everything better than everyone else right now. <laughs> right. And, uh, well, with the exception of Taiwan and Japan and, and, and Sweden. But 
Taiwan, Japan, I mean, there's there's various different there's a lot of variation in how those countries are run and based on just different statistics of population and different different things that essentially uh, I don't think makes it possible in America for various different reasons. Um, and right, and yeah, I'm it, usually looking at the bigger countries that are the most comparable to to America. Obviously, uh, you know, France is a completely different language, completely different culture, but culture, but there's more more in the same realm of comparing to America rather than uh, Taiwan or something like that. Not only is France massively more populous, and so you know it kind of attacks that part of the equation, but it's also you know completely different. Or it's a more similar culture. Uh, two of the things I was going to mention before I forget about them. Um, so, um, as far as I, I can tell, it, making the universal part of universal healthcare, you either have to have a uh, uh, universal mandate where everyone has to get uh, healthcare, or you simply build that into the say uh, the Medicare system in America. Anybody who doesn't have uh, health care uh, through their employer or some other means is automatically covered by uh, Medicare through taxes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so would, uh, personally, I w I'd, I'd prefer the latter. Uh, I think that's one of the problems with Obamacare is it is, it is kind of burdensome uh, mm -hmm. having to having to figure out how to maneuver your way into getting health care if you don't already get it with your employer. But with right. the medic having just Medicare that automatically covers anyone who doesn't get who doesn't already have health care, it seems to me that that would be the more efficient way to implement universe the universal aspect of health care in America. Not again, because that's my whole point is I'm not uh, trying to get rid of you know public option or uh, private options for healthcare. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure everyone is uh, covered to a certain level, uh, no matter who you are, no matter anything else like that. So part of the issue with maintaining a private option is that eventually there will be a time of people opting out. And this this had a this has occurred in, 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 in other countries beforehand where even Taiwan where when they were coming up with a healthcare system plan they essentially decide that no, you can't opt out, um, and, and and that's, I think to me, um, having a private system of healthcare within America, along with a universal healthcare system, um, it, it, I don't, I'm not sure how that would turn out for, for very. How people. have you, uh, again, I haven't, or again, you, you'd, you probably studied certain aspects of this more than I have. Are you familiar with how Germany and France have dealt with that? Because again, they have both public and private you know, aspects of their healthcare system. Everyone, everyone who doesn't get uh, healthcare through their employer or some other means is automatically covered by the government, right? So I don't recall how Jeremy dealt with it. I, I, I remember reading this beforehand, <laughs> so my memory is a bit short on that. But if I remember correctly with Germany, and probably someone, if, I, if anyone listens to this, will probably correct me on this, because this is why I do not remember. But I think, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if, if the private opting out remains an issue right now, but one of the issues that you can mitigate with that, um, yeah, I can't recall. I can't and of recall. course, Germany is the most populous uh, country in Western Europe, and so to me, that it, that would uh, lead more credence to why their their version would probably be the the best one. Like you said, to right. if we were going to copy and paste something to America, that there's there 
again, more similar culture, not identical, obviously, um, but more similar, more populous, more alike in a lot of the same ways. But uh, <clears throat> uh, we may want to finish off our final final uh, remarks on healthcare and move on to uh, um, what were we going to do? UBI. Yeah, yeah. So I think one thing also with Germany is that if you're going to implement a universal healthcare system in that sense, it's going to have to trickle down to the healthcare education too. I think I think part one thing that's very obvious is that compensation with doctors in Germany and various European countries are significantly lower than um, than American doctors. Right. And I would actually go further and say like even in a free market, American doctors are objectively overpaid. Um, that, that, right, that, right, right, right. And it's not because oh they don't deserve the pay or any of that sort, but it's because the education that brings the, the way that we formatted our, our healthcare education for doctors and for healthcare providers is immensely costly. Right, it's extremely, extremely uh, difficult or expensive to get a doctorate. <laughs> yeah, and it's just not, An MD. Out, it's just not reasonable. And so if one was to, and so like for me, for me who leans towards a free market system, that would want to be the, I mean, that would be one of the first things to go is, is how can we format the education that can lessen the trade-offs of this, that can decrease the cost of healthcare providers, but also provide ample education. Because at some point, right, and it's not that, and it's not that the quality doesn't matter, but it's that at some point when you raise the quality, there comes diminishing, there comes with diminishing marginal utility, right? right? There comes with diminishing marginal benefit. And a lot of diminishing yeah. return. Right, and now, and now the, the the marginal costs will exceed the benefits that are that are being gained from that. And I do think we are at a point where it seems like the benefits of all the education that we pour into um, these doctors with immense human capital that come out with these immense skills, I do think that 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 the benefits um, are, are 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 essentially outweighed by the costs. Um, and I think a solution for that would be to have additional specialization and additional separation in different branches of healthcare and different tasks that would essentially you know, divide that labor and essentially right, right. make the process a lot cheaper. But that remains to be seen. There's a lot of barriers with that. I mean, the AMA does not want that whatsoever. Right. Uh, there's a tradition of them. <laughs> Wait, of say them. that again, last part again? The AMA. Uh, the oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, they, they, I thought you said Andrew Yang there for a minute. I was like, no, no, <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> The AMA has will probably not be for this for various political reasons. There's a lot of issues with, I mean, that would essentially, that would really, that would cause an erosion of the prestige of, of being a doctor. And, but, but, but I think, you know. I, right, exactly. And being in it for the prestige shouldn't be the reason that you're in a, being a doctor in the first place. It should be to help people while uh, earning a reasonable income. But Exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. So, uh we can move on to the next topic then, UBI. So, uh, I'm not, I don't know how much you have uh, studied it or how much, and of course every implementation is different because Andrew Yang's uh, Freedom Dividend is not the same as like mm -hmm. uh, Milton Friedman's not quite so universal, but basically a similar, you know, the negative in um, uh, income tax, or the right. ne negative or tax return. Negative income tax uh, so, what's your opinion on, uh, you know, on UBI? So, I'm a lot more ambivalent about UBI. I, I think Yang's proposal was a lot more reasonable, and that he was essentially doing 
Like if you want to keep your benefits, then you won't get the UBI. But if you want to have the UBI, well, then you have to exchange that for the benefits that you receive. Right, exactly. And, what, and in most yeah. cases, he said uh, that most pe- the, the UBI is going to be more than the benefits they're getting. And so that's going to, you know, take out a large portion of the people on welfare. And so there's you know, there's doesn't need to be nearly as much of a bureaucracy uh, for just mailing checks out to people compared to, um, you know, having to verify whether someone's income is this high so that they can get this amount of uh, food stamps or, you know, something to that effect. So replacing a lot of that with, uh, you know, Andrew Yang's version of the UBI seems pretty, you know, beneficial. Yeah. and, and that is definitely something that I'm, you know, I, I, if, if cutting off welfare and exchanging that with a universal basic income, I think that would actually be a better proposal. And I think part of the reason why is because you're just giving direct, I mean, you're directly giving cash, right? You're not, you're not going through and organizing all these ridiculous bureaucratic networks of benefits of how these things would be received, right? Where you have these food stamps, where you have these different things and you have to go to different avenues to actually receive those benefits. But instead you give them straight cash, right? And, and, you know, just just per regular economic assumptions is that human beings are rational and that you know <laughs> well that that's where my uh, psychology background would uh would disagree with that humans are basically basically rational or the the ration rationality that uh, economics professors are thinking of is a different rationality than uh, psychology because in psychology there's a whole laundry list of cognitive errors and biases that cause people to make wrong uh, the wrong decisions that uh, and just the fact that they humans very much uh, they're focused on the near-term immediate goals more so than long-term uh, stuff that could happen they're like well I could uh, think about that but I, I don't want to worry about that now and so there's sorry I didn't again I didn't mean to cut you off but that's kind of where where the psychology background would uh, differ from the uh, economics one, I suppose. Right, and I guess it all depends regarding the long-term, short-term uh, discussion. I think that's a very that that would be a very fascinating discussion for the future. But I think re- regardless of that, um, as for the economic assumption that people seek to you know maximize their utility or maximize their gains with the cash that they have, um, I think we have better reason to trust people who receive universal basic income to use it to use it well to use it to their needs. Right. Right. Oh, and to uh, double check what you said, you said that you'd prefer them get rid of all welfare altogether and just have the UBI cover all that, which right and, oh, and, okay. and increase which and, would and, differ from uh, Andrew Yang's proposal. Right, right, and, and that's where I differ with that. And you can also increase the income to like match in proportion with the welfare, like because even in that sense, like because I mean, it's more feasibility, right? Like I think it's a lot more feasible for one to say, let's just convert the entire welfare system into just cash and liquidate it and just give it, and just give people liquid cash versus um, versus saying like, oh, just get rid of welfare in general and just, and, and, you know, and that's it, right? But so I think, I think that would be a more reasonable approach versus like any other. If, if there are libertarians who support this, I would say that this would probably be a, a better approach or a more optimistic approach. I think that would, that, that would, I, I would say that that would be better and like maintaining current you know maintaining current budget expenditures I would say that that money better well spent than than the current welfare system with the all sorts of different inefficiencies I mean there's a lot of studies that's been done on this that shows that really um, whenever welfare benefits trickle down from 
you know, from the treasury or from from the government through the bureaucratic network down to the recipient that they only get a very very small fraction of that i don't exactly remember the amount but they don't even get the whole dollar they don't even get half a dollar if i remember correctly they just don't get that much and and that just seems to me to be wrong right, right i mean right. basic intuition tells me that that's wrong and that the system should be made to be more efficient where they're you get rid of all these different in- intermediaries and you just hand out that cash which i think is much I mean, would be much better, and it also would cut off, cut off a lot of waste. Right. I think one thing that that I I'm still studying and still looking at is the benefits of of UBI, um, because there's a lot to be promised, and there's a lot of potential with UBI program. But from my understanding, um, the causal establishing the causal effects of the benefits and establishing the, the various um, policies and ways in which how you, the UBI benefits could trickle down. Um, that that seems to be a topic that's still that's still being studied intensely. Uh, right. and- well, I mean, I think it's uh, fairly reasonable to say that if everybody got a thousand dollars on top of what they're getting right now, uh, mental health is going to improve because simply financial stress is going to alleviate to some degree. Right. Right. And 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 and, and that could be a benefit, but my concern is more about the long term long-term benefits of that which I to me that 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 remains to be unknown but I do know that there are some very very um, some vocal advocates for UBI amongst the libertarian free market circles right which is one of the reasons why I thought it was so interesting because there are a lot of people who are Andrew Yang is very clearly on the left I know that or he's he's center left for sure uh, but I know that I'm gonna there are probably be a million uh, comments in the comments section of people saying Andrew Yang's a right-wing neoliberal or something <laughs> something like that but anyway um, <laughs> that's exactly one of the that's one of the things that I like to that I found interesting about the U- UBI is that both people on the left and right seem to you know be given it a, a pretty good you know consideration and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them, the neoliberal podcast. I know the word neoliberal, again, may set a bunch of people off. I'm, by neoliberal, I'm not talking about, you know, free, com- like complete laissez-faire, uh, free market yeah. individuals. And by the neoliberal podcast are people that, certainly from the U.S.'s perspective, are on the left. They're a mm-hmm. part of the, I can't remember the, the Progressive Something Institute. But anyway. Progressive um, uh, the progressive, yeah, man, I, I, it just slips my mind right at the moment. But uh, um, they're they're one of the things that the host of that podcast likes to say is he's not necessarily pro UBI, but he's UBI, UBI curious. <laughs> right. And I would, yeah, and, and I, I would consider myself in that in that category. Um, but I I am somewhat ambivalent about it, and that I don't feel very strongly about it for various reasons, but I do have preferences as to how it would be implemented. And I think I think doing, I mean, I think, like I said before, and just exchanging those benefits and just turning them into straight cash would be such a, I mean, really that's, I think that's, that would be much more efficient by, by, by a long shot. Right, Versus right. And of course, uh, at least, again, Andrew Yang's version, it seems like he has a pretty good uh, idea of how to pay for it. The, the, amount that it would take over from the welfare uh, welfare bureaucracy and welfare payouts and stuff would I think was six or eight hundred million and then uh, there's several other uh, 
there was another, um, I'd have to double check uh, the article that I read, but it was another $800 million through another way. And so basically the net cost of it, rather than being like $3 trillion or something like that, was only going to be $1.4 trillion. And then Mm. just implementing the VAT tax would basically take care of that and actually probably like more than take care of it. And, uh, you know, the response for a lot of the people on the left would be um, that that a big um, consumption tax like that disproportionately uh, affect the poor, which is true. But that's why the whole point of this isn't just to introduce a con- cons- consumption tax. The net, there would be a significant net benefit uh, when combining it with the UBI, because people are still going to be getting much more money than they're going to be spending extra on the things. And uh, Andrew Yang pointed out that you you can easily just um, make items that the poorest of uh, society uses more often exempt, like uh, diapers or toilet paper or you know various things like that. And so it could still be tailored even in that way. And so. That's what uh, what I liked about it is it seemed like he had a pretty good idea of how to pay for the UBI. Yeah, and I, I you know, when he was still running for president, I, I, I consider him to be the best candidate out of all the candidates that are running. I, I, I would I would essentially hold him and Joe Jorgensen as essentially like my top two candidates. But unfortunately, the Democratic establishment decided to pick. Um, <laughs> Joe Biden, yeah. which to to be fair is better than Donald Trump, but Joe Biden was somewhere like I don't even think he was in the top five of of the Democrats that I was interested in. Yeah, but being better than Donald Trump is a very very low bar to pass. Oh yeah, that. oh yeah. <laughs> Again, I can already see the comments stacking up in the comments section. <laughs> and I mean, let's not even mention about the whole sexual assault accusations with Joe Biden. Um, and I mean, part of my frustration was like a lot of the people on the left just not a lot i don't know how many but like there were i mean new york times came with their op-ed and they were like i believe in tara reed the accuser of joe biden on sexual assault but i'm still gonna vote for him and i was like okay um there there seems to be some some hypocrisy going on here regarding the previous election with donald trump when he was straight up you know accused of sexual assault right absolutely and of course um man i lost my train of thought you go ahead (laughs) I mean, it, it just seems to me that it's it, it's it's such a lack of principles and it's such, and I mean like, yes, all every single criticism that I'm gonna be putting out against people regarding, I mean, against I mean against Biden supporters regarding this issue, I would also just turn, I mean, I, I didn't vote for Trump. I was too young to vote for Trump actually. But even if I was old enough, I would not have voted for him. Um, and that remains to be the case now, right? But like that, that cuts both ways too. Well, and of course, one of the things is, sorry, again, didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, uh, It's not that necessarily you're supposed to believe guilty until proven innocent. It's just that uh, it seems like the Democrats assume, uh, assumed Joe Biden's innocence before seeing any of the evidence. uh, And then with Trump, it was the opposite. And in both cases, it should uh, an accusation should be taken seriously and not mm-hmm. automatically dismissed or accepted. It should just simply be taken seriously and investigated. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't have to do with what party someone is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, how are they going to handle this whole case with Tarvid accusing him? You know, I, I, I don't know. But it was, 
there was some irony sprinkled when certain lefties were very, very skeptical about the whole sexual assault, uh, the sexual assault um, accusation against Biden when essentially this was the exact same attitude the conservatives had when Trump was being accused multiple times and Kavanaugh was being accused multiple times where they would say right. stuff like, this is just perfect timing. Right. I mean, I mean and, she was just, I mean, they're just being dishonest. I mean, right. it, it reeks of, I mean, and the less we have right now, it reeks of Gloria Steinem whenever she essentially threw Monica Lewinsky under the bus to defend right, Clinton. Right. Because, you know, for her, for, for what principles to be, to, to, to be grounded on feminist ideals, um, there's just a lot of irony in that. And, and you know, I, I find that to be just quite, like, epic. I mean, just in terms of principles and just in terms of ethics, it'd be pretty disgraceful. Right, right. From my perspective, the the thing that I would say was at least slightly different with Joe Biden is that the accusation is a pretty, uh, like, a description of the situation, like him, I can't, what was it, leaping onto someone in the elevator and, you know, just getting very uh, explicit. Yeah. And so the reason I would say it's at least slightly different from the Trump thing is that is unlike almost any other, there's not a history of doing stuff to that level as far as mm -hmm. Joe Biden there goes. There's, there's, there's you know, the, the kind of creeper-like creeper sniffing mm -hmm. people and stuff like that, but there's nothing that rises to that level. Whereas with Trump, uh, a lot of the accusations against him were perfectly in his history of behavior i mean i mean it's funny because back when i used to and this was a long time ago but, but back when i used to actually follow the daily wire you know the ben shapiro ben shapiro oh yeah um before they went <clears throat> they um you know before they jumped onto the trump train they actually published an article where they were they just recalled all of the, all of trump dirt and i mean ben shapiro wrote it i think i think he wrote it but he basically like recalled um the, the incident where um, Trump was accused of raping his first wife, Ivana Trump. I mean, I mean, this stuff is not new. It's just right, right. And, and exactly. Are, so there's a whole history of it, or a history of s such accusations with Trump. Yeah, and so that, to me, is just beyond. I mean, the state of American politics is truly where it's at because, quote unquote, we the people really deserve it. Because people, I mean, the American electorate chose these people, elected these people. And because of that, they suffer for those consequences. And I, I mean, right. That's one of the things that kind of, kind of irks me is everyone blames the two parties. And I'm like, then why don't you vote for somebody else? <laughs> because right. the fact of the matter is, is yeah, the, the DNC is going to have its favorites and so is the RNC and they're going to, they're going to push money to try, you know, advertise and all this other sort of stuff. But when it comes down to it, they're not getting in there unless they get votes. And so... It's just, I don't know, plays to the gullibility of the masses while also that they want something. They'll complain about the two parties and yet they'll they'll stick to those two parties with with an iron grip. And uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the, what is it, like an 89% re-election rate for, for members of Congress and yet uh, something like a 12% approval rating or, or maybe like 20%. But in, in any case, Every they everyone thinks that Congress is terrible, and yet everyone reelects the same congressman. And and once you start questioning these assumptions about well, why do you have to keep voting for them? That's <clears throat> for the status quo, uh, that's when they start making the same 
ridiculous nonsensical arguments for why they have to maintain the current electorate for why this person's the best option and this and this whatever and and i mean yeah to me to me it's just the political scene of america is utterly pathetic all right and right they deserve it the american electorate deserve it for this yeah <laughs> i agree well uh shall we move on to immigration <laughs> yeah yeah all right, so so give me your uh, your perspective on immigration. Open borders. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's where it is. Of course, there's a that's one another one of the interesting crossroads where people pretty far to the left often agree with the libertarians who are still firmly on the right. Mm -hmm. um, personally, uh, obviously, you said open borders, correct? Yep. Which isn't no borders, which is one of the first things that uh, people start to conflate knowingly or unknowingly about it. It's not no borders. Um, I'm assuming you're in favor of everyone who crosses the border still needs to be, you know, tallied up and accounted for and given a, you know, identification number or however they do that sort of stuff, correct? Right. Right. So that's simple common sense stuff. Um I'm, I don't, again, on, on this, I don't have a firm, I don't have a firm position other than that uh, borders are not nearly open enough. I'm not sure where I would be at on a fully open border. I may completely agree with it, but um, I can, I can potentially see a level of, of, uh, it's possible that there could be a level of immigration at which it overwhelms, um, overwhelms, you know, institution, overwhelms the ability to keep track of them, overwhelms, uh, you know, to some degree, uh, culture. And by culture, I don't mean like it in the right wing sense and like, like trying to preserve, uh, some specific religion or something like that. I'm just talking about like, you have to believe in freedom of religion or you should be believe in freedom of religion uh, if you're here and if you get too many people who don't believe in freedom of religion again I don't think that's the case I don't think we've ever come close to having a flood that big and I don't right. think a flood that big would happen I'm just basically trying to play devil's advocate in which I can see a situation in which that could be the case and in which completely open borders may be not necessarily the the thing with the best consequence and but I'm certainly pretty i'm ve very open to the idea of open borders <clears throat> yeah at least i'm playing devil's racist because <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of i mean really this the struggle i mean and especially within the libertarian circles the debates on immigration is always very very heated for various reasons right and, because know, a lot like, of uh, a lot of libertarians are just republicans who are calling themselves libertarians <laughs> obviously obviously like you i mean you kind of know my political viewpoints on that, so I'm, I, I mean, I would be considered an extreme libertarian. I mean, considered to be an analytical anarchist of that sort. Um, and amongst those, there's still a lot of hard debate on immigration, particularly with understanding how to deal with, you know, oh, well, since the state exists, how are you going to deal with reporters, right? But I think I think the answer should continually, decisively be. Sorry, that was a notification, but oh, right. I think I think it, the should be decisively open borders. I think it should continue to be open borders for various reasons. I think, I mean, 
like mirroring, economically, or sorry, go ahead. I mean, not just economically, but I think mirroring some of the stuff that you talked about with climate change, like it seems to me that the social, the the social scientific literature on this is pretty overwhelming. Um, the evidence for immigration right. benefiting, having a net benefit, is really really hard to overturn, and. And most people I mean, do assimilate by at least the second generation, if not the third. And so oh, the idea absolutely. that 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 America is going to stop being America is doesn't make much sense. Right, it's not sense, right? And and I mean, the economic benefits are just all. I mean, so when you talk about like fiscal benefits, like oh, well, what about the the burden on the you know the public budget system, right? The public finance system is that well, it's it, based on all the studies that's been done. It seems that there's evidence pointing towards that on a federal level, on a national level immigrants would actually be a net benefit. They'd be a right. net benefit for public finance, <clears throat> but the benefit is negligible. So Especially like, with stuff like uh, uh, social security, or I mean, of course, I want, I want to buy open borders and stuff like that. The whole point is to have, make it so that they're considered legal. Um, and so they would, in this scenario, be paying tax, but especially right now, um, uh, illegal immigrants are generally paying t taxes in a lot of cases, and some yeah. I can't remember, it's, it's to the tune of several billion per year. And so that is actually helping um, uh, keep s Social Security afloat, which has been drained for various stupid uh, reasons over the decades. But, um, and, but even, but, uh, and that's one of the things I heard about some from some libertarians to oppose. Uh, borders based open borders based on the economics uh perspective is they're like well if they're officially legal now they do get to uh draw from social security i'm like yeah but they're also still now paying more social security tax or they're on average ever almost all of them are paying social security tax right now and not and for for the matter it's just the fact that they're going to be younger and they're not going to be people that are retiring anytime soon for the most right. part that are coming over. And so even if they're eventually going to draw on social security, they're still helping us right now. And, and I think for libertarians and I think for just people who object to open borders by saying, well, it, you know, it could overwhelm the welfare security, it could overwhelm social security. Uh, I think there's an immense lack of imagination there because there are various policies where we can, and I mean, we can, there are various policies that we can adapt to those circumstances. And right. it's they're going to be paying sales tax. It's not like right. the I mean, immigrants are uh, exempt from sales tax. They're going to be paying income tax and all that other sort of, you know, all those other sort of things. Right. And it's not like economists haven't come up with these different solutions. It's just that people don't listen to them. Right. right. Like really, really, really like just straight forward solution would just be, well, why don't you just put up visas for sale? Right. You, 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 you allow people right. to purchase visas and you put a limited amount, I mean, you, you, you put out, like, you raise the, the visa cap by 100 to 200, 300,000 and you have people buy it, right? That essentially is, is that, that goes to, I mean, that all those benefits go to the government, right? They get to keep that money for various, you know, whatever they want to do with that. But not to mention that if people were to buy these social security, I mean, not social security, but these visas, <laughs> there, there ends up being a self-selection effect for the people who are able to afford it which means these people tend to be more decently well off, which means they tend to be higher skilled. Well, what does that mean? If you're higher skilled, you're gonna earn more money. And when you earn more money, you're gonna end up paying more taxes. Now, some egalitarians and some people may, may object to this by saying, well, this is just discriminating against the poor. And I would agree, right? That's just one of the many, many solutions that you can 
essentially divide into different stratas of how you want to deal with certain immigration that you can say, oh, well, instead of, um, you know, instead of having these licensing, right, like what I mentioned before, with healthcare licensing, like doctor license, um, uh, medical license, and different high skill license uh, licenses that one has to one has to obtain. That like, instead of having these string, stringent regulations that prevent other high skill laborers from coming in, that you can essentially allow them to come in with just buying with visas, but you have a different policy or different system with lower skilled immigrants. One of the biggest issues is that when people say open borders, they just imagine like these hordes of low skilled Mexican workers. Right, because real brand. <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous for so many different reasons. Not just not just like philosophically, but also ethically, but also just empirically, it's just not true. Yeah, because they don't all stay here. Just like before the nineteen sixties legislation that made it, uh, that started this kind of started this problem in the in the first place. Uh, they would come to America to work. They'd work, and then they'd go back across the border home. And they, the, the whole half the problem now is that since they know that it's so hard to get across the border, they stay rather than going back and forth. Right, and, and, and so, like, thinking about open borders isn't just about low-skilled immigrants coming in, right? And it's really ironic, because I remember uh, there was a Ted Cruz ad that was on Texas. <laughs> ironic. Texas, but it was about, this was during the 2016 election, and it was, it was about immigration, and he showed these well-dressed men and women with suits and, with suits and luggages and suitcases just hopping across the river, and then you just hear uh, Ted Cruz's um, monologue, and it was like, <laughs> If, if if these immigrants are coming were journalists or were doctors or were lawyers, they would they would immediately go and try to restrict these types of things. That was this whole thing. And it's like, yeah, you're right. So that's and guess what? It's because they are. It's because they are restricted in the first place. So open the borders up for the high skilled workers to come in. Open them up because right. they, they will be the main contributors for, you know, various taxes. But I don't even think like taxes should matter. Like to me, that just seems to be, like again, like I said beforehand, like it's a federal. It, it, it tends to be a federal net positive in terms of the, the, at the federal level. But at the state and local, um, local government, it tends to be a net negative. But the 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 immigrants' net negative contributions are still negligible. Like, right, right, right. Exactly. They're they're technically a net negative, but not by enough of a margin to where it overwhelms the other benefits. Right, and and it's just like it, it doesn't make sense. I think one way to think about this is that when immigrants come across, even though they're low skilled, right, and 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 public resources are poured into them with roads or schools, whatever other nonsense that's going to try to amplify the costs, right? These are still initial investments of human capital, and once the second generation comes, they they tend to be higher skilled and they tend to be more assimilated into the American population. Like these things. Don't just stay permanently. Like these, these people don't just stay to be like. A, they don't remain to be a permanent drag on. Right, them. exactly. Otherwise, like America would have never recovered from the multiple, massive surges of immigration the eighteen forties, eighteen eighties, nineteen, you know, tens, twenties. Like right. <laughs> we would have never recovered, and in reality, we only got stronger and stronger every time. Exactly. And it's because immigrants are overall always beneficial to the economy, almost always beneficial. The most skeptical, first of all, if people are to go like are, are to go against the grain on this, against the socio-scientific literature on this, the only respectable scholar that is in this that is in the economic literature on this, that is deep within the economic literature, and is mm -hmm. an immigration skeptic, is George Borjas. 
He's a conservative, and he does not mm-hmm. like immigration. He doesn't like immigration. He prefers less immigration. But his own studies, his own studies and his own empirical work show that immigration tends to be a net benefit. And even if they are a net loss, it's a short-term loss that is mitigated in the long term. Right. right. The most famous study that I did was the Marriott Boatlift, when you know when when, uh, when Castro released just decided to release a bunch of Cubans into Florida. There was there was according to his study like a seventeen percent decrease in, in, in wages for for low skilled uh, non high school graduates. Low skilled non low skilled non high school graduates seventeen percent, and that was in a short run. And even at that point, a lot of the economists that read the study questioned his assumptions and how he categorized, um, how he, he like he like had four different strata of oh low skill high school graduate low skill low skill high school dropout and a high skill uh, high school college graduate and, high, and, and, and like another category and it was like why don't you just do two categories high school and college because that's the standard way of measuring it and when you did the standard way right. of measuring the wage impacts. There was there was no cost. There was there was no decrease in that. And if there was any decrease in terms of repeating the studies, it was essentially negligible in the short run. That it was it just made little to no difference. Um, and so like, really, the arguments like when you read Heritage to our political immigration, I mean, I don't even think Heritage is that uh, like, like <laughs> Heritage has a lot of problems. But the Heritage the econ departments and econ departments, the econ research and heritage is actually still top-notch that's just from me knowing some of the people that work in dc that are libertarian and conservative and work in the economic circles and that's why that's what they're respected in one sense but i mean unless you're going to talk about like a lot of those organizations that come up with these these this information about how oh, immigrants are 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 a drag on the u.s economy they're kind of irrelevant like they just don't have the credentials they don't have the data and there's an over. I mean, the burden of proof is on them. They need to show how it's a cost, and they need to have a, they, they need to have overwhelming support, right? A lot of conservatives have this habit of just citing one study from freaking uh, right. Fair. Oh yeah, that's one of the things that drives me the most crazy in any sort of st- subject that has anything to do with science or studies. Is I'm like, you don't take one study. You take the convergence of evidence. You look for meta analyses. You like, you don't just pick a handful. And you also need to like have real peer peer reviewed journals and stuff like that it's not a right and, and <laughs> those made up pay to play ones they do the exact same thing with immigration and crime i remember there was a brief video of uh, i don't know if you know him michael knowles he also works at daily wire he's like a catholic conservative uh not he, familiar right off the bat yeah he, he gave a talk at a university and he was like talking about how immigrants commit more illegal immigrants commit more crimes and this professor questioned him, and this professor, this lady did not was not. I mean, she's not immersed in the immigration literature, but she he re, he reiterated that he cited federal studies that showed that immigrants committed more crimes, as if there aren't any problems with federal studies. And it's it's like again, in terms of crime, which we're not going beyond the realm of economics, the socio-scientific literature is still overwhelmingly on the side of immigrants that they commit less crimes right because I, I researched the specific thing as far as uh, germany goes because one of the conservative talking points is oh look at germany and france they're they're getting sharia law zones and they're they've got crime skyrocketing with all this you know fl- flood of immigrants coming in and i looked into the stuff and i'm like no they're their uh crime rate is actually increasing at a much slower rate uh 
than the amount of immigrants that are coming in, which means that immigrants are actually uh, committing less crimes than uh, local-born people. And, of course, all those countries have lower crime rate than America anyway. And, like, <laughs> even then, it's just not a good case. Like, it's not a good argument against open wars. When, like, when conservatives say the, the mass the, the mass security refugee crisis showed that open borders don't work, it's like, no, it doesn't. I mean, why do you think... I mean, what is the difference between Syrian refugees and Mexican immigrants? You're it's like, what are you looking? What are you looking at? Because I've seen this stuff and it didn't say that. Word, Syrian refugee and Mexican immigrant or Chinese immigrant. Syrian refugees fled. They fled from Syria. Why? Because America's been bombing Syria. Because it's there's a civil war going on in Syria. And so guess what? They fled, and they're forced to flee because they don't want to die. Like. This is just basic elementary distinction right. of categories that it's just it, it flies over it just flies over their head on that and it's just no it's it's not true that this is a case of how open borders would work it's it's actually not it's the opposite it's what happens when you have awful foreign policy that creates blowback right it creates blowback and causes these various issues that trickles back to the original countries that intervened right, right? It, it's just it's their just not, their position know. on this is like in a lot of areas, they're not actually concerned with where the best evidence points. They're, they have a value system behind this. They don't, they, they're trying to, they don't like foreigners is basically what it is. And so they're trying to think of whatever they can to justify not like, liking foreigners. Or There's a lot of situations in which uh, everybody does it, obviously, left and right, right. but I can... Off the offhand, think of uh, a lot of right-wing situations. For example, um, caught, uh, sex education in schools. Like, or there's a big, robust amount of evidence showing that abstinence-only school districts, or districts that teach abstinence-only sex education, have way higher rates of STD transmission and teen pregnancy than the the school districts that teach comprehensive sex education and so there is overwhelming evidence for this like we pretty much know this for a fact but because those on the far right have they have a value that they're trying to preserve they and a, a bad value they're 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 puritanical uh you know but ter being terrified of of sex and so they they want to force a policy that we know against all evidence is not a good policy because they have an emotional attachment uh, to the issue rather than a consequentialist version, rather than you're like, okay, well, whether I want this to be the case or not, what is the case and what's the best way, best thing that we can do to get to the, the best outcome. And for, for people like me, the best outcome is fewer teen pregnancies and fewer uh, STDs. For them, they like STDs are the natural consequence of of engaging in sexual immorality. <laughs> right, it's, it's it's obviously ridiculous. And, you know, as a Christian, obviously, like that's it's not preferable, right? It's just right, not, right. It doesn't work. And I mean, there's, there's all sorts of issues in how conservative Christians try to implement, you know, biblical morality into law. There's all sorts of problems that I've that I've had that I've talked about with them, right? Like prostitution is one of the things that I think legalizing it or not legalizing it, decriminalizing it, because I don't want Frankly, I, I don't like government legalizing things because it just gives them more credit to tax and tax and regulated. <laughs> I mean, you already know my political disposition on it, but decriminalizing these things is much more preferable for various reasons, right? And I mean, there there is a certain 
I mean, there there are certain ethics where, like, even if these things are wrong from a certain from a certain perspective or certain moral viewpoint, right. the issue I have, does that does that grant you necessity to then regulate and to stop it? Right. They're like, I'm I don't want you to do that. Therefore, I'm going to make laws as if people aren't going to do that. And rather than I'm not going to do that, but I recognize that people are going to do this whether I want them to or not. And so I better create laws or from that perspective. So it's like, obviously there, there is, there still needs to, I mean, there still is a leap, whether or not the Christian is right, there still is a leap from normative ethics into actual policy. And that remains to be a continuing challenge. But right. even like going back to immigration and some of the crime stuff is like, when people, people like Michael Knowles because of this like federal studies, uh, and this is just like a quick, quick breakdown of the data as to why citing federal studies is not a knockdown in terms of crime rates. Um, the federal government enforces immigration law and border patrol is directly funded by the government, right? And so because of that, federal prisons tend to have a higher population of illegal immigrants. That, that means that there is already a self-selection right, right. here. Exactly.